0: This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and in number 7 of the series, The Two-Foldedness of Prophecy. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. And those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you read with us the 31st chapter of the book of Proverbs? It is possible that some may wonder why we picked on a chapter like this. Well we are dealing with prophecy and you might think that prophecy is so far remote from the everyday things of life and if we think that we are wrong. Solomon is renowned isn't he in the scriptures and also in um, history quite outside the scriptures for his wisdom. But what a fool he was wasn't he? With all his wisdom with all his wisdom, the moment he ceased to hear the word of God, he degenerated and failed. If you go through the Proverbs, the whole book, the Companion Bible will guide you here. You will see some Proverbs were written for Solomon's guidance, and some Proverbs are written by Solomon himself. And if you care to collect the teaching in each set, you'll find he practically endorses everything that was told him except one, the warning about a certain type of woman. And his wisdom couldn't save him. And so Nehemiah says, even Solomon was led away by outlandish women. So there we've got that strength emphasis there. Well now, I want to make a virtue of a necessity In one of these uh, recent tapes I said that the first 11 verses of the book of Genesis covered 2,000 years. Well, of course, you know, I ought to have said the first 11 chapters. But that helps me, you see. I'm just getting around that now because I'm saying, well, you see, that's helping me to say to you what I want to say this evening. That practically the whole teaching of the Bible is a matter of biography. How much isolated doctrine do you get? Take the whole book of Genesis. How much individual lifting out of a doctrine? You don't get it. As somebody said, I think it was Luther, he said, justification by faith walks about on feet, Abraham's feet. The, the, the biological, the biographical statements that are made about the families leave you with the idea that God's purpose is illustrated all the way through by the vagaries and the variations that are in human life. Somebody was asking me a question all about Cain's wife. Another one asked me a question about something to do with the time of the flood. Well, if you only just think, two thousand years, what wouldn't we like to know that happened in those early days? And yet, The whole story of Cain and Abel. They're born. One's a keeper of sheep. It doesn't tell you what happened in those early years, you see. So, what I'm coming to is this. That we're going to consider this evening the way in which the scripture has focused upon two kinds of women. Now, this is not an unchivalrous thing because the scripture focuses upon two kinds of men. And there are some very nice men and then some very nice women. But there are some very evil men and some very evil women. And they're all put into the book to give us warnings, guidance, and God himself has used them. I was just listening before we came out to some critics. They were criticising Odile's play based upon the ancient Greek Electra. And one of the statements made was it enabled us to face the unfaceable, Because, you know, it's a play that's written all about the perverted feelings that go on with regard to one sex and another until at last you get horrified. And yet, it comes home to you that you say, it's up to date. You needn't go right back to early Greek history to find these abnormalities. You've only got to read your newspaper and listen to the reports from the law courts to know it's still with us. You see, So the point is, we shall find that God himself astute to associate himself with human relationships. He says that Israel is not merely a nation. Israel is not merely a lot of people. Israel were united with God as a wife to a husband. And then God says, and I've entered into the same thing that you enter into, unfaithfulness. And yet this wife is divorced and for a long time in isolation, but brought back again by the infinite love of God and restored to a rightful position. He calls another company, the faithful overcomers, the bride. And then the church of the mystery has as its goal the perfect ania, the perfect husband. And you say, it's like the man at the zoo who looked at the rhinoceros, he says there ain't no such thing. Well, I don't know much about that because I I wouldn't like to speak about myself, I'm too modest. But the church of the mystery is not the bride. The church of the mystery is the perfect man. And that word is translated husband three or four times in the very epistle to the Ephesians. So you see, God himself has stooped down to the level of the family and all its interrelationships to illustrate the outworking of prophecy. And so we could go on like this until their time was up, but I must be watchful, mustn't I? I do remember as a boy, I think it was in the paper called The Referee, George R. Sims, who was a novelist, he had a series of short novel stories called As It Was in the Beginning. And there was Adam and Eve and a serpent in the garden. There was Cain and Abel, the conflict between two brothers. You know, you knew what he was going to say, didn't you? Even as a boy, I guessed it was going to be like that, you see. And that's been going on over and over again throughout life. Adam and Eve and the serpents going on still. Whatever people may think about the story in Genesis and set it aside as a myth, it's here with us all the time For the work of the evil one keeps to a pattern. And then I went further than that. I couldn't help thinking of the words in uh, higher water, and I pra- practically had to ransack that poem, although when I did find the verse, I found I'd marked it with a pencil. So I'll repeat again, words I think we do well to keep in our mind when we think of our human relationships, because the whole world is made up of men and women, and all the history is their reaction one to another. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women in it are but players. And here it says, this is in Hiawatha, and it's using the Indian language, the North American Indian. As unto the bow the cord is, so the man unto the woman. Though she bends him, she obeys him. Though she draw him, yet she follows. Useless each without the other. So there are various ways in which we may consider the fact that in poetry and in symbol and in scripture we get God and man being sort of uh, obliged to look at the relationships of men and women to find their symbols. I saw in the paper that Butler had had a con- convention, and they came to the marvellous, all oh, the marvellous conclusion that delinquency began at home. <laughs> well, you know that, don't you, before you start. Well, it's true, isn't it? So now we're going to look at the um, teaching of Scripture with regard to prophecy. The two women, one the bride, and the other the unsavoury name, nevertheless we're going to face it, the harlot. There's the two. And they're put in apposition in the book of the Revelation, so that the very descriptions almost uh, echoed when we come to the fact that we will see that. Now first of all, we get statement in the book of Genesis that although man came from the hand of his maker, God looked at him and he said the words, not good. You know that, don't you? He didn't say anything else was not good of the creation that he made but he looked at man and he said it is not good for a man to be alone. I will give a help meet for him and he did it that way. Man was made to sense his need before God provided it and that was the bait that Satan used and it's the bait he uses today. The affections the associations that are so strong that they can be used and exploited from every possible direction. So here we have, in the book of Malachi, right the other end of the story, he's speaking to the priests and he says, you're playing fast and loose with the marriage bond. And he throws them back to the book of Genesis. He said, and God gave one, one, and wherefore only one, Had he not the residue? Couldn't God have given a multitude of wives to Adam if it had been wise? And why one? Our version says that he may seek a godly seed. But the original is deeper. That he may seek a seed of God. And the one great thing that Satan was out to do was to sow his tares in God's field. And I dare not go, go further in this matter because of the delicacy of the subject. But you do know, don't you, that there are those who belong to spiritualistic uh, circles who sometimes have made it a public statement that they are expecting a child by a spirit lover. You remember the flood was brought about because flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth when the sons of God saw the daughters of men. So now we must leave that part of it to speak for itself and come to the question of prophecy. God, as I said, took Israel into relationship with himself, not merely as a king over subjects, not merely as God over a created people, but he took them in relationship to himself as a husband takes a wife. And then he said, they departed from me, they became unfaithful, and the whole thing is challenged. Will you now turn with me to, first of all, the prophet Jeremiah to hear his word about it. Jeremiah chapter 3. It starts off with a very suggestive two words. They say, they say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man, shall he return unto her And they don't answer the question. They just go straight on. Shall not that land be greatly polluted? You see? And the charge is made against this people in such terms as you hardly like to read them in public. But there's no mincing matters with regard to this prophet and speaking about this people. He calls them by this monstrous name that we find is brought right to its head in the book of the Revelation. And then in verse 14, we read these words. Supposing we read verse, uh, verse 12, Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will cause mine anger to, f- not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity. That thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn all backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. God is speaking. We sometimes invest God with a sort of stoical, uh, uh, character, that his eyes are looking out like a sphinx over eternity, unmoved, but that isn't the teaching of scripture. He grieved him at his heart, it says, that he had made man when he saw the corruption in the earth. And here he says, I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city, and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And then in chapter, in the, the prophecy of Hosea, if you'll turn to the minor prophets, That is immediately after Daniel. Hosea, chapter 3. This man, this prophet, he had not only to write prophecy, he had to have it invade his private life. He wasn't allowed to choose his own wife or his own wife to choose him. I don't know which way it goes about. I think there's a statement that man proposes and woman often helps him. I don't know who said that, but it sounds as though it might be true. But it says here, that he was a, he was obliged to take a woman who was of a disreputable character. He was going to live in his own private life, so that what he said was not merely just empty words. And now it says in chapter three that then said the Lord unto me, "Go yet, love a woman beloved of a friend, yet an adulteress." He's telling him he's got to marry that sort of woman according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So I did so, he said. I paid the price that was necessary to ransom her from the one that had deceived. So I bought her to me for fifteen pieces of silver, omer of barley, and half omer of barley. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Thou shalt not be for another man so will I also be for thee. Now, the meaning of that, prophetically. For the children of Israel shall abide many days. You see, according to the law of the Old Testament, a woman who had been taken in that position. She had to be segregated for a time. Neither the husband or the wife met together until a certain time had elapsed, in order, I suppose, to test things out. And so the Lord said to Israel, The children of Israel should abide many days without a king and without a prince. See, it says you should not be for another man. You won't have a king, but you won't have an earthly prince. And you know that is true of the history of the Jew. When a war breaks out, he serves the prince in his own land and fights his own people in the other, in the other army. We've lived in the days when that is so. So, They abide just negative. And without a sacrifice you can't keep the law of Moses. And without an image they will not lapse into idolatry again. That's true of Israel. And without an ephod that is a priest they haven't one. And without teraphim they were the as far as we know the genealogical tables which turned almost into a sort of an ancestor worship. But what's this equal? Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Well that is what is going to happen then. When we come to the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, Acts 28, we are told that Israel departed after Paul had spoken one word and said, you're going out into your blindness and the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles. That word departed is the word that we get in uh, Matthew, the first chapter, when it speaks about Joseph, who had a mind to put away the affianced wife because of the possibility of something going wrong. So, Acts 28 says, Israel were put away as a woman that is described in Hosea 3. And in that inter waiting that time, God has been using it to bring you and me into a sphere of blessing that was not even revealed in Old Testament times. That's, of course, another story. Well, now, let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 54. Let's get the bright side of the story, as well as see this black side. Isaiah 54, verses 4 to 6. Isaiah 54 verse 4 Fear not for thou shalt not be ashamed neither be thou confounded for thou shalt not be put to shame for thou shalt forget the shame oh look at the words coming even though they're not going to be put to shame it's being mentioned isn't it that it's there and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore for thy maker is thine husband. Again you see God taking this title to himself. The Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall be called. For the Lord God hath called thee as a woman forsaken, and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith the Lord. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. And then if you look at uh, the passage later on in chapter 62, Isaiah chapter 62. Let's read the first five verses. Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof be go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentile shall see thy righteousness, oh, what a difference of the shame, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name. That's lovely, isn't it? A new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. And sometimes people have to do that in this life because people know so much about them, they have to change their name and change their residence and change their occupation in order to get away from it. And God says, I'll give you a new name and the past shall be remembered no more. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. See, that was one of her names. No more be termed forsaken. Neither shall thy land be termed desolate. Thou shalt be called Hephzibah. I suppose you know the Hebrew word means my delight is in her. That's a nice thing for a woman to hear, isn't it? My delight is in her. That's what God is going to say to an unfaithful nation who crucified the very Son of God. What mercy and what grace is manifested here. And thy land shall be called Beulah, that is, married. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land the very land itself shall be married. Then there's a strange changing of figures of speech. For as a young man marryeth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. But notice the point. It's not merely taking back a divorced woman. It's starting all over again with a new name and just as a young man marries a virgin. This is light, isn't it, upon the heart of God. And the heart of God has been grieved. And now the heart of God is delighting to bring this wandering nation back to himself. Now you know as well as I do the many other passages that we could quote. But I must pass on from the restored wife to the bride. Now you know as well as I do, with all the best wishes in the world, you couldn't call a divorced woman who has been restored to her husband, a bride, could you? It wouldn't, it couldn't be. So we get in the book of the Revelation another company. And we find them mentioned in the the book of the Revelation, chapter uh, 21. We get it in chapter 19, but I'm looking at chapter 1 verse 9. I'm doing that on purpose. Chapter 1 verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels. Which had the seven vials, full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto stone most precious, even like a jasper stone clear and crystal, and it goes on giving this description and all the, the street, and verse 18, it says, and the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like under clear glass. Hence a city like that. And the foundations of the wall were garnished with all manner of precious stones, and so on. Well, now the reason why I've started there is because of the evident comparison in chapter 17, verse 2. 17, verse 2. Or verse uh, 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. You see, the words are almost the same. One of the seven angels, which had the seven last vials, said, I will show thee the bride. And one of the seven angels said, I will show thee this Awful opposite. And then the description. Verse 3, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And in the book of the Revelation later on, he says, I was in spirit and I saw the heavenly Jerusalem descending from God out of heaven. So it says here, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy having said seven heads and ten horns. Now don't think the woman had got these heads, it's the beast. And the woman was arrayed, here it comes, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and colour and decked with gold. I was rather interested in this word decked because it could be translated gilded. Gilded. It's the word made up of the word gold. Gilded. All what that word represents in so many of these superficial things with which we're surrounded. Gilded. Why we speak about the gilded youth, I don't know whether there are any of them now, but you know the type, don't you? And you've got, you pass a place, and the blare's going on inside, and all the stuff is gilded. There's no connection etymologically between guilt, G-I-L-T, and G-U-I-L-T, but they sound alike. And they very often are linked together. So it says here, this woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet colour and gilded with gold and precious stones and pearls. But oh dear, oh dear, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And then comes the statement, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon, the Great, the mother of harlots and of abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman, drunken with the blood of saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with a great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I read that because you might misunderstand he wondered with a great admiration. You say, what, John himself gave off the, the end? The word wonder, the word admiration, and the word marvel are all one and the same. Why the authorised version wanted to go out of its way to get three different words here, I don't know. We'll put them back. I marveled, with a great marvelling. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? Well, he says, Isn't it something marvellous to think of this? Dominating the earth from the days of Babel, Genesis 10, until now. And it has, friends. If you care to go into the ramifications of idolatry, and the evil teachings of false religions, you'll find they all lead you back to one spot of earth, Babel. The Chinese, the um, the Roman Catholic missionaries, when they first entered China, when they entered a heathen temple, they saw Madonna and child waiting for them already. She was there. This is all over the earth. The many things that we adopt as symbols in even churches today go right back to ancient Babylon. And they are already there to give their story when the time should be right. So we have this contrast, this heathen system, which has dominated the earth. Well, now we get, um, but once again, I think we must go back to chapter 19 because of the um, description of the bride. We don't want to be harping on the evil side all the time. Well, while we have chapter 17 open, you might notice the association with the city Verse 18, and the woman which thou sawest is that great city. You see, the bride is associated with a city, and here are the two cities coming right out of the end. They're there at the beginning, they're here at the end. These two cities representing the two evil systems. And so we have in chapter 19 these words. It says, um, verse 6, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, "Hallelujah! for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So here's the marriage of the Lamb. Now these are overcomers. They are not the ordinary rank and file. The restored nation is a restored wife that had been divorced. But those who have right to enter the heavenly city, those are the ones who are the overcomers, as you'll find by referring to the message to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And then it says this, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed, not gilded, arrayed, In fine linen, clean and white. And when you think of the uh, description of the other woman, you see, here we have this utter simplicity. Clean and white. For fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, write, Blessed are they which are called unto the married supper of the Lamb. Now that cannot be the bride. The bride is never called to attend the marriage supper. She's there by right. So now we come back to the parable. In the Gospel according to Matthew, we have a parable where there's a marriage made by a king for his son. And he sends out an invitation. And then make light of it. And then he says, he sends a second time, and this time he says, Come. I've prepared everything. The oxen are there. It's all ready. Come. Israel were given two opportunities to respond to this. They were given the opportunity when Christ was here on the earth. They were given a second opportunity for he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And now Peter could add what couldn't be said in the first. All things are now ready. Christ has died and risen again. Come. And they're not only mocked, But they persecuted those who were sent to them. And the scripture says that God, that king, will burn up their city and destroy them. And he did in AD 70. He used the Roman army to burn up the city of Jerusalem and scatter that people to the winds. And then he said, my son is not going to be dishonoured. Because you must remember this is an eastern wedding. And I was only reading recently a man who was in bankruptcy. He was a Jew who spent five hundred pounds to give his Jewish daughter a proper send-off. Well, you might say, well, he, he he went to the extremes, but there it is, you see. And to have no one, anyone turning down the invitation would be such an insult that couldn't be tolerated. So the Lord in the parable says, seeing they that are, that are in, invited were not worthy. Go into the highways and compel them to come in that my marriage, the marriage for my son may be furnished with guests. Now, as far as I can interpret, I don't know, even I don't know everything, friends, you understand that, don't you? That the Gospel according to John drops this hint. You say, when you read the Gospel according to John, what is the dispensational position? Not the body of Christ. It's whosoever will, and the one great gift is life. But where are they off to? Where will they be? It doesn't say. But it does say this. The only gospel that says that John the Baptist was the friend of the bridegroom is John's gospel. He's the friend of the bridegroom. And the first miracle that our Saviour is recorded, although it was not necessarily the first one he ever did, but the first one that John puts down is, on the seventh day, and I'm going to leave you to look at the early chapter and count up the days that I mentioned, in chapters 1 and 2, and when you get to the chapter 3, you've got the seventh day, he attends a marriage at Cana of Galilee. They were invited, he and his disciples. So it looks as though The people of Israel had an opportunity to have the great honour that some of them would be selected to be guests at this marriage of the king's son. And you know how they turned it down, and they themselves lost. And so some poor outside Gentiles, who have just believed John 3.16, and they wouldn't know what we are talking about when we speak of right division and the church of the Mystery. They are being gathered from the highways and the byways and they will go in to the place that was forfeited by the true guests so that that marriage should be honoured. That may be another one of the many things that we must look at individually and personally. And then you will notice that in this book of the Revelation there is a false prophet well, now you, you're prepared, aren't you, to know that he's got his opposite number. Oh, yes, right through the book, there's an opposite number. So, when you come to chapter 2 and 3, you'll find that in um, Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 18, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, These things saith the Son of God, who had his eyes like unto a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. That's pretty searching, isn't it? I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last be more than the first. We may not fully understand that, but possibly they will, to whom it's addressed. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, Now, you go back to the old story in the Old Testament. That woman, Jezebel, well, she's got a counterpart again. And I suppose there have been counterparts many times in the history of the opposition to God's truth. And at the long last, the prophet, the false prophet outside, who is working together with the anti-Christian beast, will have a false prophetess inside, who will be carrying on the same dreadful trade. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And it looks as though we've got to accept this as a literal fact, that a day is coming when instead of saying, oh, we don't talk about those things, oh, they say that's just ordinary, that's natural. They're being indoctrinated in it to say, oh, we don't want to be fusty. The old Bible's out of date. It's coming, friends. As I've drawn your attention to the uh, statement in the prophet Zechariah, the leaden casket as a travesty of the Ark of God, it has a flying roll and it says on this side, him that stealeth, let him off. That's my translation. You'd have to check that. The The word is translated hold him guiltless. And the one who falsely swears, let him off on that side. And that's what's happening today with regard to morality. You don't call it stealing. You've got any amount of words in the slang dictionary if you want to get a choice and don't say you're stealing. You know them as well as I do. You've heard them many times. And so there's this this degradation going on. But isn't it good to know that God has the last word? The Alleluia's in the book of the Revelation are not uttered. Not in chapter 1, 2, 3, no. Right on to the Alleluia goes up. And the Alleluia goes up when Babylon comes to its awful end. So that there is an end to these things. And what we have done this evening is to indicate that the two mysteries that we've already touched upon in an earlier study are marching together until they come to this book. Now, we already saw in chapter 17 that this Babylonian harlot has got the word mystery. But that, of course, is a travesty. And in chapter 10, we read these words. I think we'll read the first few verses because of the majesty of the introduction. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was under, as upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet to spill as pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth, and he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices, and when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Now why that's written, none of us know. But if we were living in the days when it takes place, we shall understand. So we'll leave that. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, therein are, and the earth, and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that's where it trips you up. After oh, you've said it twice properly, it goes the other way around, doesn't it? And that there should be time no longer. Now, that's misunderstood. I, I don't want to be irreverent, but I don't think God can stop time going on. God doesn't do impossibilities. There should, time there should be time no longer. This word time, if you look it up, in the book of the Revelation. It's opportunity. Opportunity. He gave them time to repent. I think it's translated once place. He gave them place to repent, although it's a word for time. Opportunity. But he says, you've reached the end. Opportunity now is gone. There comes a moment, as God says, when that will be. That there shall be an opportunity no longer. And in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. So the two mysteries now converge. That when the seventh angel sounds, he shows me mystery, Babylon, which is about to be destroyed. And he says, in the very self-same time, the mystery of God should be finished. And so in chapter 11, verse 15, and the seventh angel sounded, and there was a great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world, i become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Well, we've done our best with a very, very difficult subject, I hope you realise, to handle. But there it is, from the early chapters of Genesis, right through the story, when Noah came out of the ark, it goes all over again, and a son is born, who was the great persecutor of Israel afterwards the descendant of Ham, Canaan, right the way through into the Gospel period, right the way through the Acts of the Apostles, right the way through until 1961, in which we're living, these things are there. And if you shut your eyes to them, that's all to the bad. We don't talk about them, we don't magnify them, but we shall be very foolish if we imagine that they're not there. People object to the Bible because... It speaks about these things. Well, it would be a strange thing if a holy God could write the history of the human race with a a devil who is doing his utmost to pollute it without giving you page after page of warnings all the way down the story. And yet, after facing all these things, let us be grateful, let us be thankful that he says, I'm not one that comes down Without mercy. He says, I will wed you again like a young man marries a virgin. I will call you Hephzibah. My delight is in her. I will call your land Beulah for it to be married. I will make a marriage for my son so that other believers shall be united to him as a bride to a bridegroom. And I will call a church in the interval and I will say their goal is to become the perfect husband. And there I'm going to leave it. For a very good reason. I don't know what else to say about it. I can only hope that I've stimulated your interest and that you will turn to the many passages that are on the edge of these things and thread them together and realise that in this book we have written the words of one who searches the hearts, who divides between soul and spirit, that nothing can be hid from his eyes. And if you and I in any shape or form, can thank God that we belong to a home where there is the slightest approach to this unity, this love, this oneness, this trust in one another. Sometimes it wouldn't do any harm if you went on your knees and instead of saying, our Father which art in heaven, or worrying about whether you have this day our daily bread, thank God that that home of yours has not been invaded, that that sorrow of heart that God has represented himself having has not touched you or your loved ones. And keep it a matter of prayer that it may never be so until the day dawn and the shadows flee away.